Welcome to Trial Lawyer Review. My name is Jason Lazarus, your host. This podcast is for and about trial lawyers. We'll tell the stories of trial lawyers who go to battle every day in courtrooms throughout the United States for injury victims. And this will be about their stories and about their practices. Hello, everyone. I'm Jason Lazarus, your host for Trial Lawyer Review. Thank you for tuning in today for another episode. Trial Law Review is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. In full disclosure, I'm not a professional podcaster. My day job is Chief Executive Officer of Synergy. Synergy allows trial lawyers to focus on what they do best by handling the difficult issues at settlement, like complex lien resolution, Medicare secondary payer compliance, public benefit preservation, and complex settlement planning. Joining me today on Trial Lawyer Review is Elise Sanguinetti, a highly skilled and incredibly well-respected trial lawyer with the law firm of Arias Sanguinetti, Wang, and Perios uh, Law Firm in California. She is the founding partner uh, of that law firm with offices in San Francisco, Bay Area, LA, Las Vegas, and Montreal. Her main focus of expertise is serious injury, wrongful death cases, civil appeals, and legal malpractice. She exclusively represents plaintiffs in civil litigation and holds an AV rating with Martindale Hubble and has been named a California super lawyer uh, every year since becoming eligible. Elise has been recognized as one of the top plaintiff lawyers in California over the past eight years and was named one of the top 50 women lawyers in the Bay Area. She graduated from the University of San Francisco School of Law where she earned her JD. She was admitted into the California State Bar in 1997, one year after myself. Uh, when not in the courtroom, she's a frequent speaker at nationwide seminars and writes articles that are featured in various legal publications. Her copious amount of work has been recognized with numerous awards and various organizations. It is an impressive list. I've seen it all. Uh, she's a past president of AAJ, a past president of the Consumer Attorneys of California, and a past president of the Alameda Contra Costa Trial Lawyers Association, which is a mouthful. Uh, so without further ado, welcome to the show, Elise. Good morning. How are you doing today? I'm doing awesome, and thank you for joining me. Uh, so to start out, can you talk a little about, bit about your law firm and your practice? Yeah, I'd be glad to. Um, we started this law firm about uh, a little over five years ago, <clears throat> excuse me, um, and we, um, we started it because we really wanted to be a full service plaintiff's law firm. Um, we joined together partners that did all sorts of different types of plaintiff's work. Um, I, I really grew up in... Um, uh, practicing plaintiff's law, doing mostly product liability and individual personal injury cases. Um, some of my partners' focus um, had been on class action and mass tort work, complex litigation of all sorts. Um, and and we've, uh, we have one of our partners in Las Vegas um, had practiced as a defense attorney um, handling medical malpractice cases and had been practicing handling plaintiff side medical malpractice cases for, um, for years before we uh, brought him into the fold in our firm. We, um, we wanted a place that, that felt like family, to be around people that, that we really enjoy practicing law with and to surround ourselves with staff that are top notch and um, really, really care about the work that we do. And myself and my partner, Mike Arias, are very active in trial lawyer organizations across the country. Um, he was, he's a past president of, the consum of, of CAOC, Consumer Attorneys of California, which is our trial lawyer, uh, our state trial lawyer organization, which I'm also, as you mentioned, a past president of. He's also a past president of, the, um, of CALA, which is the uh, Consumer Attorneys of Los Angeles, which is a almost as large as our statewide organization. And so we've, we've both spent a lot of time, a lot of the partners, we've spent a lot of time devoted to not just helping individuals um, 
as much as we possibly can in our practice, but also trying to focus on making a change for consumers um, across the state and across the nation. And that's really what our mindset has been in organizing this firm and representing people. It's, it's all about giving a voice to people that otherwise wouldn't have a voice. And I want to come back to that um, after we talk a little bit about you because you've got this incredible history of service uh, to different trial organizations. I want to talk about that in a moment. But first, what led you to become a trial lawyer in the first place? So I was, while I was in law school, um, the, I was a, it was the summer of my first year of law school. And it's kind of that time that's a little hard to, to find work at a law firm. And, um, and I went out there and just kind of hustled to try to see where I could find some summer work because I really wanted to immerse myself um, in a setting where I would learn in real time what it was like to be a lawyer. And I worked for a personal injury, a, a solo practitioner, and, um, and I learned so much. He really, he brought me to trial that first summer, um, actually asked the judge for permission to allow me to question a witness. <laughs> Um, during a during a, uh, a personal injury case, and I really did get the opportunity that <clears throat> excuse me to see um, everything firsthand about what it was to be a plaintiff's trial lawyer. And then I clerked for um, two judges in Contra Costa County who were handling um, civil litigation, and I I got to see the other side of it with the from the judge's point of view, and watch so many great trial lawyers go in front of a jury and argue their case. And I just knew at that point that um, that was really what I wanted to do. So when I got out of law school, um, I was lucky enough to get a job um, really, really close to where I lived. Uh, I live, live in Walnut Creek, California, which is in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I joined um, a prestigious plaintiff's firm that was located in Walnut Creek and started um, you know, just representing people, which was what I wanted to do. I wanted to make a difference and be in the courtroom because those were the two things that mattered to me and I knew I wanted to do it on the civil side. So I, I was lucky to kind of get that dream job right out of law school and, um, and have been practicing plaintiff's law ever since. My uh, third year of law school, I did a clerkship for a federal judge in the Northern District of Florida. And that was an incredible experience getting to see from that side and watching the lawyers um, appear in front of uh, the, the judge and listening to the judge and working with the other judges, uh, clerks in, in that office was a pretty cool uh, experience. And, and ironically, um, it was right around the time that F. Lee Bailey was having his troubles and was actually in the courthouse there while I was there. Um, so it was kind of a strange time, but um, really, really cool experience to, to see it from that side uh, of, of the, the bench. Definitely. And I think it gives you a perspective of, um, especially with, with legal writing, because there's so, that you do so much of that as a law clerk for a judge. Um, it gives you a, a, a really great perspective of what's important um, to the court and to, to really hone in on those important issues and kind of leave out the garbage that, that you see so much in briefing. Um, it, it's, a, it's, it, it's, a, it's a really important thing to learn early on because as you know, most, most uh, young lawyers come out of school and they're focused mostly on briefing and to have that ability to know what matters to a court it's really critical. Yeah, interestingly, I, I read a lot of habeas petitions written by, um, you know, uh, inmates. And, you know, it was funny because they would use certain buzzwords, which would get them past it just being summarily dismissed. But interesting that you talk about legal writing. I, I did. I, I agree 100 percent. But it just brought back that memory of <laughs> reading through these hand like 20 pages of handwritten documents and, you know, just with a few constitutional buzzwords thrown in all, all throughout. So interesting, <laughs> interesting uh, to talk about that. 
can can you talk a little bit about your experience as a young trial lawyer? I know you you that's where you started getting very involved with AAJ with the new lawyers division, but just curious about your experiences and whatever you want to talk about, whether it's just your experiences as a new lawyer or coupled with the new lawyers division. Sure. Um, so on the the work side of it, um, it, it at at the firm that I was at, I. I, the timing of me um, joining the law firm, which was Hinton and Alford at the time that I joined it, um, I when I started, we um, were just beginning a three-month, what, what turned into a three-month trial involving um, a rollover accident where, um, where there were multiple deaths, and it was against um, one of the big car manufacturers. And I, because of the timing of me starting there, I was able to immediately get involved in preparing for that trial. So I, I really got thrown into the deep end right when I started um, on difficult legal concepts and, um, and also got to really immerse myself in a really lengthy, complicated trial as soon as I uh, began there. So I was, lo- I was so lucky because you know so many young lawyers don't really get to be that involved in trial work. I've always I've always been every firm that I've been involved in um, has has really been a focused on actually being in the courtroom and actually trying cases, which was one of the reasons that um, it was very important to me from even a young age to uh, to kind of get to know other lawyers that did what we do. Um, because I wanted to learn as much as I could. Uh, I didn't want to just uh, kind of learn just from my immediate surroundings, but I, 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 I started to realize how much you can learn from people in other jurisdictions, how they do things differently. And my uh, partner, or senior partner at the time, uh, Peter Hinton, was a board of governor for ATLA, for... Um, for what was AJ was formerly known as, um, and he encouraged me to come to a convention, and I went to my first my first real convention that I went to that I traveled to was in Atlanta, and I I, I kind of remember it like it was yesterday, although it seems like a lifetime ago. I went into a new lawyers meeting, and um, that was the. Uh, it's a membership group subsection of the organization. There's women, the Women's Caucus, Minority Caucus, and the New Lawyers Division. And just being out of law school and only practicing for a couple of years, I really wanted to have a sense of community. Um, and so I went to that meeting, and that's ex- immediately what I found. Uh, there was lots of opportunity to get involved, and I saw that and volunteered for something, and... Um, was just really welcomed with open arms from all of the other new lawyers from across the country and the leadership in the new lawyers division and um, started doing small things, working on publications and gathering articles for the new lawyers uh, publication that they had at the time. And then that kind of grew into uh, raising money for PAC and and trying to um, raise membership trying to get other new lawyers to join the organization. And then eventually, within a few years, um, I ran for, for office for the new lawyers division and eventually became chair of the new lawyers division, which is the largest membership group um, in, in the uh, organization. So ATLA at the time and now AHA. And it provided me with so many opportunities to... It provided me with access to get more involved in education, to not only learn from trial lawyers across the country, like some of my heroes, Russ Herman, who ended up becoming a, not only just a great friend, but almost second father to me, and, um, and so many others that I have, I mean, the list is just so long of people that I've been able to get to know and become really good friends with through uh, first learning from them and then teaching with them as my skills grew. So um, that was kind of my intro to uh, organizations and, and 
and uh, there's so many benefits that come from it and I'm happy to talk about those as well. Yeah, I want to, I definitely want to dive into that. Um, but you know, what, what is, sounds like an incredible experience getting to, you know, walk into a, a very complex auto case, uh, rollover case. Did you find any challenges, um, when you entered the practice being a woman in what is generally a male dominated type of practice? So, um, it, you know, my law school class was um, just a little bit over 50% female. I grew, I'm going to take you back a little bit further because I think it's helpful to know my background. I, I am um, the youngest of six kids in my family, and there's a huge age difference between me and my oldest brother. We're, we're about we're 24 years apart in age. And, yeah, big difference in age. And... Um, but being the youngest with I have two brothers and three sisters. And so I, by the time I was born and growing up, my brothers were out of the house and it was just a really strong female family unit with a incredibly supportive dad who, um, encouraged all of us to really get out there and, um, and do whatever we wanted to do, that there was really no limits. And my mother was definitely the same way. She worked, my parents owned a company, an import uh, company, and they uh, traveled around the country. And so I always just knew, uh, I knew I had no, I, I didn't feel that I ever had limits. I, I really, really believed that. And, and I still do. Um, and I, I grew up with such strong, dominant women in my family um, that everybody was just really goal-driven and when I went to law school, I had a really um, strong uh, group of girlfriends that we, where we just, you know, focused ourselves on, on our goals. And then coming out of law school, going into my first firm, I was, uh, all the other lawyers were male um, besides myself, but... Um, their support and their encouragement was so strong that I never, I never felt um, marginalized in any way, and it was um, it was a really incredibly supportive environment. I think the first time that I kind of felt a, a gender bias in any way was more um, with interaction with opposing counsel. And yeah. that started to come, it, it comes, it came a little bit with, um, with also bias against youth and, and in, ex, in ex, I'll call it inexperience, um, just assumptions made that, that you can, uh, that you don't really know what you're doing when you walk into a deposition or, you know, the old, the old thing that you hear about, uh, you know, walking into a deposition being asked if you're the court reporter. I mean, I, I really honestly don't know a single female lawyer that that hasn't happened to. It, it really honestly does happen. Um, you know, being being degraded a little bit during, during depositions with objections that are gender-specific and targeted towards you... Um, it happens and I, and I, it was, it was jarring to me when, when it first began. Um, but again, being undeterred in my goals and representing my clients the best I could, it, it never derailed me from, uh, what I knew I needed to accomplish. It didn't distract me whenever it did happen. I would stay focused on, on my deposition on whatever I was in the middle of doing, if it was in trial, if it happened in trial or in court, um, also would not get derailed, which was really important. Um, and and it, um, but it has it really having those experiences um, really was important to me to be able to make sure that I was helping other young women as they were growing in the legal field. Because I, I didn't feel deterred, but I didn't want anyone else to feel deterred. And I wanted them, um, I wanted others to make sure that they didn't feel that they didn't have a place as a plaintiff's lawyer, as an advocate for others. 
because of a few bad apples. And, um, and so mentorship and, and forming um, bonds with other female trial lawyers, lunch groups, people that you could just, you know, have conversations with about uh, the, the specific hurdles that women trial lawyers have to face um, was really critical to me. And it's something that I still find incredibly important to do for others. Yeah, you know, um, sign of a professional yourself, an accomplished professional. But, you know, one of the things that I, I hold very dear is this idea of professionalism in, in the practice of law. I actually have a law practice that's separate from Synergy. And I do some litigation with Medicaid liens here in Florida. And I always... Uh, love when the the judge will compliment both counsel on their professionalism and how everything was handled, because to me that's that's a really important part of that. It's sad to hear. Um, I I had not heard that gender specific um, you know objections during a deposition. That that really is very unprofessional and just. I, I I hope that uh, as the profession continues to evolve and we have more women trial lawyers. I should have asked you a better question because really it's, it's that there's, there's really fewer women trial lawyers, trial lawyer, the trial lawyer area seems to be more male dominated on the platinum side. But, you know, my hope is that we continue to see a trend where more and more women uh, become trial plaintiff personal injury trial lawyers, because, you know, this idea of that somehow there's some kind of gender barrier there, there, there should not be. I will tell you that I think that that that, um, that is changing. It has definitely been changing over the last few years. There's a great group that I'm involved in that's uh, called Women in Mass, which is um, a group of women that do mass tort work. And it's a, a that when when mass tort work um, first began, it was there was a drought of women involved. It, it really was very male dominated. Um, it much, I would say at a much higher level than, than the, your regular PI practice, your every, uh, I don't want to say every day, but your individual PI practice. Um, and that has shifted immensely over the last few years. And I think part of it is because of um, groups like Women in Mass that where um, other women that do that work are there to support each other, share information with each other, and also advocate with the courts to um, to make sure that when um, when leadership is appointed, because those those cases are who the judge decides who actually gets to represent the plaintiffs. So it's a different situation than individual cases, there's at the court is much more involved on who takes a leadership position. And, um, because of, because of many strong judges and many strong women that have been involved in mass torts, there has been a dramatic shift and a push towards seeing gender and, um, racial diversity in the leadership of mass torts. And it's made an enormous impact. So there's so much that there's so much room for growth, but there has been so much growth over the last few years with a focus on making sure that that litigation that's appointed by the court is really um, has an eye towards gender diversity and racial diversity. Well, it's wonderful that you're you champion that. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your experiences. Um, and cases that you've handled, is there a particular case that you've handled that you think is really incredibly important or influential and why? Um, every, I get touched by every case that I get involved in because they're real people. And they're real people that are struggling um, because it, it, on my individual and, and, and the mass tort cases, it's just that the mass tort is such a large number. You don't get to know your cases, your, your individual plaintiffs very well. Um, but the <clears throat> wrongful death and serious injury cases, when people come to us, they are, um, and, and 
in a situation that has changed their life. Um, they've lost a loved one or they're struggling through such a serious injury that it has changed everything about their life. And they come to us for help. And that's really what they're doing. So every one of my cases has really changed me in, in some way and touched me in some way. And I still stay in touch with so many of my clients. One area that I've been working on lately with uh, my partner, Jamie Goldstein, that's, that's been different for, for us over the last few years, and it's not an area that most uh, trial lawyers get involved in, is um, working on cases representing people that have died in jails um, or prisons. And they tend, um, a, a lot of lawyers don't take the cases because they, they're very specific cases, con they're violations of constitutional rights, um, they sometimes have a mix of uh, medical malpractice in there as well. Um, you're representing people that are that have been incarcerated, so um, there's a level of complexity and um, and there's a bias against those that have been incarcerated. So um, there's a hurdle that even even the most compassionate trial lawyer. Has, hard, has a hard time getting past because of a concern of what a jury would do with the, uh, with the case because you're representing somebody that had been incarcerated for one reason or another. Um, but we have really championed this cause, um, representing family members of, um, and, and sometimes inmates, of, um, of incarcerated and excuse me, incarcerated individuals. Um, and it's been something that has given us a different perspective on, um, on the, the, that type of case and, and the family members involved of who we're representing. Now you touched on something that um, is very near and dear to my heart, which is this idea of empathy and connecting with injury victims, what they've been through. Uh, you know, one of the things that I do with our team at Synergy is every month highlight in a mission moment what the facts of a case were and how we contributed to helping that client in the end because I want them to understand that when people come to us, it is a point in time where they've been through something pretty, you know, awful if they're, if they're needing our help or they're needing a trial lawyer's help. And actually I do in, in our onboarding with people, I, I talk about the accident I was involved in, um, as a cyclist, I got hit by a car and uh, had some pretty significant injuries as a result. And, you know, I try to put that in context for them, not that my case is important, but just this idea, anybody and everybody can have their life changed in an instant. And that's really the importance of what we do and trial lawyers, the, the essence of what you guys do is work with people when they've, they've suffered something really significant. And I'm, I'm just curious, how, how do you connect with clients empathetically with what they've been through? And, and then how do you disconnect so that you don't internalize it and you know, have it eat you up because some of the facts of cases just can be really brutal. Um, <clears throat> I think the empathy comes with uh, the type of person that becomes a trial lawyer to begin with. Um, I know it, it, in our firm, it is, it's, it's a belief down into our core. And when we are hiring people to join our firm, our, we call it our family. Um, we spend a lot of time trying to find out whether or not the people that we're gonna bring on board have that same core. Because um, it, it is so important to us that whoever, from, from our receptionist to our partners, that every person that is involved in our cases understands at their core 
what they're doing and why they're doing it, which is for our clients to help them and to understand that when things can get difficult with communication with clients, which it does sometimes because you can't always remain, excuse me, as in touch as um, some clients would prefer or just there may just be misunderstandings in what's happening in a case that it, your response always comes with a sense of empathy. Um, so I think that we work really hard to try to find the right people to be a part of our firm, a part of our family that feel the same way that we do. Um, as far as disconnecting, I'm not sure that we ever really do disconnect. I think that there is, um, there is something about helping so many people. You're, you're working on a lot of very important cases that until we get to the point of trial or very close to trial, we're not totally immersed in one. And, and believe me, it becomes extremely hard to detach yourself once you do become completely immersed in one case, which happens when we go to trial. You know, it becomes, it becomes our, our complete focus. Um, up until then, you're, 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 you're dealing with a lot of people, and so you're just you're managing a lot, and you're managing a lot of things going on in a whole bunch of cases. But once we get get close to trial and we're, we're preparing for trial, we are 100% immersed in that one case. And it, it, is, it does become all-consuming. Um, I think our family members could speak to uh, how immersed we really do get and how close we get with our clients. And, and one thing that I find so important, and I want to bring it back to what you were saying about what Synergy does, is that even when we're done with trial or we're, we're finished with a case, we've resolved it um, and, and sought justice for our client, whether it be through settlement, arbitration, or a jury trial, it doesn't finish there. We're not done. We, there's so much more work to do. And part of that work is working with companies like Synergy, where we, um, we, we truly consider ourselves involved in the case until until the family until the individual is no longer with us and I, I mean literally in a sense of that that they're no longer on this earth um, because we will always want to be a resource to them because and what we do is we partner with groups like Synergy to then know that the next phase in this journey for our clients is being passed off to someone that has the same mindset that we do because the the contact becomes less with us and more with companies like Synergy to um, to then manage that that next phase in in our client's journey which could be through um, helping with financial uh, uh, management um, or, or annuities to protect um, a, a lot of times a minor's money so that they uh, have that money long-term into the future. But throughout it all, you know, I, I, I look at it, we've handled so many cases with minors and, and I've had people contact me from cases that I did 20 years ago with them and to talk about um, issues that are arising in their lives and their um, their needs now and and it, it just doesn't it doesn't stop it, it it's a it's an ongoing relationship that uh, we cherish and that we hold very dearly and and make sure that our clients know that we're always there for them it's incredibly cool to hear you talk about that just because it really speaks to who and and why we want to do what we do, uh, who we do it with, and why we do it. And I talk a lot about that with our team, so it's kind of cool. And hopefully, some of them will, will listen into this and and connect with 
that, continue to connect with that mission. Um, so I want to circle back to, to the leadership. So you have been a leader amongst trial lawyers nationally and in your home state of California. What has driven you in that regard? I was driven early on um, because I, I could look at my caseload, even as a young lawyer, and say, maybe I have a caseload of, you know, back then of 40 cases, and I was helping 40 people or 40 family members. You know, I, it, I, I saw that there was only so much that I could do on an individual basis, and I wanted to do more to protect even those that I didn't represent directly. That if I, even if I wasn't the one that they hired to be their lawyer, um, I wanted to make a bigger impact. And what I saw happening, um, even back as, you know, well, this has been, this has been back since probably the seventies or earlier that there has been attacks by, um, corporations, um, lar uh, those that we try to hold accountable um, for 40 years plus, 50 years plus really, have tried to um, make changes through the legislature um, in California or uh, and throughout the country really, um, and also in Congress in Washington, D.C., to protect themselves and protect themselves specifically from being held accountable. And it has definitely morphed over the years how, um, how they've tried to go about doing that. And what I saw at a very young age as a lawyer was that there was only one group in California and one group in Washington, D.C., that fought against that. There, there's a lot of consumer groups are out there, but there's no one other than CAOC in California and AJ in Washington, D.C. that is their main mission is to protect access to the courts. That is their mission. And many other groups that exist have other missions, but I was very concerned about what I was seeing, especially when I would get calls from people who were injured by medical malpractice in California. And I would review those cases and know that there had been a law that was passed back in the early 70s that limited access to the courts for people that were injured in medical malpractice cases. And when you have to talk to somebody and say, I know that, that this doctor or this hospital did something horrible to you, that the negligence is clear, but your case is capped at $250,000 and our fees are capped 20% or below and that we will have to spend over $250,000 to try to seek justice for you I cannot recommend that you move forward with a case against them. And when you have to do that over and over again, and you hear the disappointment and the, the, um, the, the lack of, you have to explain to somebody the lack of justice that they're able to receive. You, it changes you. It really does. And it, it changed me. And it made me say, we, we can't let this happen again. We have to do everything we can do to try to change um, what's, what happened in California in the early 70s, but also to make sure that it doesn't happen in other areas of the law and that people remain to be able to have this constitutional right to a trial by jury in a civil case and to hold people that harmed them accountable. And the way that I found best to do that was to work with CAOC, ad, be, become an advocate for those that I represent and those even that I don't represent, um, and to do the same thing on a national basis. So is that why 
you feel that the trial lawyer associations are so important? Is that, or is there, is there more to it? There's a lot actually. Um, there's, it, it's what, it's what, it's what drove me to become involved. That in the sense of community, that those two things would, are what drove me to become involved. But, um, but the reality is there's much more than just those two things. Um, the education that you receive, your ability to constantly grow as a trial lawyer by learning from other trial lawyers, by being able to share information with other trial lawyers, which is such a key part of being part of these organizations. Um, not having to reinvent the wheel when you are um, becoming involved in a case, a, a new, maybe a new type of case, um, or encountering a um, expert witness that others have successfully dealt with in the past. Um, so the sharing of information, the education that you receive, the, obviously the sense of community, um, and the importance of uh, the lobbying efforts both in California and in or Sacramento and in um, Washington, D.C. are huge parts of why trial lawyer organizations are just so critical. I mean, they, they, are, they are what keeps our doors open. They, they truly do keep the doors open and that the, not only our office doors open, but the courthouse doors open. Yeah. And, and there's nothing that, that honestly uh, signifies that more than, than looking at what happened during the pandemic. Um, you know, in California, uh, I know Florida actually, uh, from what I've heard is actually really kind of stayed afloat with their court system during the pandemic, but California seriously struggled and we continue to struggle with an, an enormous backlog of cases. It's, it's very true, the saying that says that if, if justice delayed is justice denied. Our clients, if they, if they die during, um, while, while our, the case is pending, the case goes away. And that person that caused their death, a company often, that caused their death is not gonna be held accountable for it. And, um, and so we, we have to we have to remain diligent about getting our cases through the court system and when the pandemic hit our courts were not prepared for this crisis situation they we we unlike florida who has dealt with a lot of um, emergency situations with hurricanes um and and other uh, situations where the the court itself may not be open, they can still function. California hasn't really um, dealt with, with an emergency plan as, as well as some other states have. And so in most counties, things just completely shut down. And if it wasn't for organizations like CAOC who got out there and worked with our judicial council and our, um, our chief of our, of our Supreme Court, who oversees all of the courts in California, uh, they came up together with an emergency plan to um, very quickly to address things like allowing for remote depositions, um, allowing for um, for remote appearances, actually mandating it so that the courts could not deny us the ability to appear in court remotely, um, having. Um, some courts think outside the box and allow us to do things like Zoom jury trials, which I was, I was involved in the, one of the few Zoom jury trials last year. Um, so we, it, but that without CAOC's efforts, I don't know that we could have gotten to that point of um, making sure that we were addressing access to the courts during a pandemic, which none of us anticipated we would need to do. So uh, I, I want to transition with the time that we have left, talk a little bit about the business or practice of, of law, aside from COVID, because obviously that's a huge disruption. Are there things that you see coming down the pike that may change the practice of law in terms of what you do? And in, in, in doing my research for our, our podcast today, I noticed a case that you 
I think is still in the works, and it was uh, a wrongful death case involving some technology that didn't um, function right in an automobile and caused someone to, to pass away because they couldn't get out of the vehicle after a crash. And it just brought to my mind, you know, this idea of, you know, hey, we may we may be 10, 20 years from now in driverless cars, but this technology could still, you know, cause injuries and death. And, you know, how does that change the landscape of, of what what we, what it looks like today? Yeah. It's, I have been uh, something that wasn't in the materials um, that it's really interesting. You brought up driverless cars. I have been um, involved in autonomous vehicle technology and its intersection with the law since um, for about, I think it's been about seven years now. So when it very first started being talked about as a, as a reality of something that we'll see in the future, it spiked my interest because I was already in leadership for both um, consumer attorneys of California, where most of the technology here in California is being developed, and also in leadership for um, AAJ. And I saw a future where, um, and I saw a pattern of what was occurring with the gig economy and a lot of these tech um, companies putting out technology and essentially beta testing it on consumers. But at the same time, at the same time, what they were doing was writing in forced arbitration into all of their contracts with these consumers. So essentially, the trend became, well, Uber's a great example. Uber didn't wait for permission or regulation and, and the state of California to tell them, go out and start your business and here's how you should do it. You're a common carrier, like a taxi. Instead, they started putting the technology out on the road and the state of California had to catch up with them um, because they said, we're not a taxi service. We're a technology company. We're just going to put this tech out there and we'll, you know, you have to tell us that we have to be regulated. The same is becoming true with, um, with autonomous vehicles and um, the Tesla's um, uh, autonomous vehicle software or uh, capabilities that they're putting in their cars. There was just an article that came out a couple of days ago about how um, NHTSA, um, which is the federal regulation agency that oversees highway and transportation, um, that they did, um, that they have warned that the technology that Tesla is selling currently in their vehicles to allow for autonomous driving from, from, from um, start to finish, point, point to point, completely autonomous, um, is, being, is essentially just being tested by the people that are purchasing it. Like that the technology has not been, um, has not been uh, approved and, um, and that the federal government has not uh, set regula regulations related to it. They're, the technology is just putting out there. So you put a combination of, of, potentially very dangerous technology out on the road. And, and I will, I want to say that I'm an advocate for safety. That's that in my core, that's what I am. So if there's technology that, that will be provided to consumers that will help the disabled to have more accessibility and be able to get around and just individuals in general, if we can take out driver error and, and computer driving ends up being the safest way for our roadway system to work, I am I'm a huge advocate for that. But what I don't want to see is that we're putting technology out before it's time, and then at the same time, we are providing protections for those companies that are just putting this stuff out there, and, and they're being protected from, from civil liability, which is how we're gonna end up holding them accountable to make, to make it safer. That combination is extremely dangerous. And so I have worked for many years um, with AJ specifically and with CAOC to make sure that, that there aren't legal protections for these companies, uh, meaning that they don't get immunities 
from lawsuits and that they don't change the standards of how they're held accountable because those are two ways that, well, that's just two of the ways. And then the third is what I mentioned before, which is, um, putting forced arbitration into all their contracts. So yeah. imagine like just with Uber, when you sign up for the Uber app and I, I use Uber generally, cause this includes all rideshare companies. Um, when you right. sign up for that app and you download it on your phone, you're accepting terms of service that the majority of us do not read. And you accept those terms of service. And in those terms of service, it says if you are injured as a result of our negligence, you don't have a right to a jury trial. You have to be forced into a secret system that's private where, the, where whatever the result is cannot be shared with the public. Um, and oftentimes the arbitrators are biased towards the company who they get repeat business from. So it's, it's a, it's an incredibly dangerous combination. And, and I, I'm glad you mentioned this as an example, because that is where I see, um, the focus of our, of our very intense, um, need to, to watch this space and to protect consumers in this space. And it, even though I'm done being president of both CAOC and AAJ, I continue to be a very strong advocate in that area because I am extremely concerned about it. Uh, with a couple minutes we have left, can you, and I think I already know, but I, I want to still get you to articulate it. Can you talk a little, little bit about the culture in your law firm and what you believe is the secret to your success uh, for you and your firm. I have a feeling it's a bit intertwined. <laughs> um, I, I think we have, we've talked about the family aspect and the, the uh, core empathy. Um, but another area is, um, is surrounding ourselves um, with like-minded people who also know the law extremely well. So because all of us have done personal injury work and focused ourselves, personal injury, I should just say plaintiff's work because we, like I mentioned before, we do a lot of class action work protecting consumer rights. We do mass tort work protect, protecting consumer rights. Um, we really do represent people and individuals in every area of the law that we can. Um, but it is about knowing that area extremely well. So we, have, we, we really have specialists um, in our firm that are focused in different areas. So as I mentioned, I started off representing people in uh, products liability. And, and you know, really, those are complicated, detailed cases where you need to, you need to really know how to handle them because they're so different than handling an individual slip and fall case or a, um, a car accident case, just really different worlds. Um, and then, you know, getting into new and evolving areas, such as the jail cases that I was talking about, um, um, you know, really thinking about uh, how you can make uh, good law for um, for, for individuals for the future. So if you are in an innovative area, um, making sure that you know how to, um, to argue the law, apply it correctly and represent the clients the best you can. That is, that is a overall feeling in our firm. That is something that we cherish doing and that we all strive to do our best at. And it, and it, you need to be you need to be well-versed in the law and you need to be a very strong advocate and not be afraid to get into the courtroom. And we, um, we are in the courtroom constantly, even during a pandemic, we are still one of the only law firms that has been able to continue to try cases. And that's really important to us. All right. So last question before we wrap up, um, a bit selfishly, I'm, I'm, interested in your take on any issues that you are experiencing when you're settling cases. You know, I, as a lawyer, I'm 
on the FJA listserv and some of the AHA listservs. And I see a lot of questions about Medicare and lien resolution issues, but I'm curious if you've seen any particular issues that you find increasingly difficult or more complex um, as part of your practice when you're resolving cases. Um, liens, the, the issue of liens are, um, is an ever evolving area we're watching. And I'm, I, I know that Synergy is involved in this as well. And you mentioned that you do, um, Medicare in your own practice, um, watching the changes of, uh, the rules related to Medicare and, um, Medicare set asides, which, you know, we're sitting, we've been sitting, waiting to see what change might occur in that area for a long time. AHA has been heavily involved in, um, in trying to uh, protect individuals from, um, from uh, protect their, their money and protect their justice for the future. Um, and and that's, that's an area that is, because it has, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of teetering at the moment. We, you know, we don't know exactly which way it's gonna go. Um, it's, that is complicated and not, Everyone is, um, is as versed in it as you are. And um, uh, we often encounter misunderstandings, I'll call it at best misunderstandings on with opposing counsel about how that area of the law currently stands. So that's a big challenge. Um, another challenge that we're facing even more so during the pandemic right now is um, with representing minors they all every case involving a minor needs court approval and when you have a significant backlog the way that we are experiencing nationwide really but um, specifically in California and I will say most specifically in Los Angeles if you file a motion to approve what we call minors compromise um, to approve the settlement it could that that hearing could be set out as long as six months from now and and or longer honestly because of the backlog it, it was backlogged before but the pandemic created a, a really really critical situation where our clients finally get to a resolution but they may not see any of that money and and that settlement approved for six months to a year that is, that is wrong. And we're, we're trying to try to deal with that. Um, I know Consumer Attorneys of California is trying to deal with that, but it's a reality we're dealing with right now. So there's, there's a lot of hurdles. Once a case, we were talking earlier about this, once a case is finished, that doesn't mean you're done. There's, there's, and when I say finished, once you have a resolution with opposing counsel, with, with the defendant, there's so much work that still needs to continue. And those hurdles... Are, um, are changing and, um, and it's very important for everybody to really kind of stay on top of it and do what you can do to make sure you continue to protect your client. Yeah, we call it the case after the case. Thankfully here in Florida, uh, the minor settlements are, seem to be moving through the system you know, fairly quickly with Zoom hearings and being approved. That's that's a you know a, a problem that the California has not been able to get their system straight to at least you know provide a mechanism to get those things approved so that you don't have them sitting and, and waiting for six months. That's that's yeah. a very long period of time. I was just gonna say in California, it, every county is very different. We have we have a lot of counties, and some some are uh, and they're all they're, they're each court system is very different. Um, there are some that where you can, you can get it done within a very reasonable time and others where they're just so backlogged that, that we have the troubles that I was talking about, but, um, hopefully we can get that addressed and, and see some resolution for our clients. So if anyone listening wants to get in contact with you and refer you a case, how's, how's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah. The best way to reach out to me is through email. Um, and, uh, that is, uh, it's my first name. It's Elise at A S as in Sam W T as in Tom lawyers.com. And I, I am, I'm always happy to help people, um, for any questions that they have on any of these areas of the law, whether it be 
related to California or not related to California, but um, I take calls daily from people just asking for um, information on a particular topic or help with a California issue. And I'm, I'm, I consider it part of my practice to help other trial lawyers. So I want to encourage your listeners to reach out to me if they think that I can help in any way, because I'm happy to do that. Well, I'm very thankful that uh, you took the time out of your day to be on the podcast today. And to our viewers, we'll see you next time on Trial Law Review. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Trial Law Review. You can find more at triallawreview.com and look for more episodes and more content coming in the future.